Well, good morning again. Good to see everybody. You'll notice the uh, admonition or the warning behind me again this week. The subject matter that comes up in our scripture is uh, definitely of the PG-13 nature, so I thought it's uh, probably a good idea to just keep put that, putting that warning up there while we look at this pretty low season in David's life. But we've been studying David's life and some of the things that the Lord has uh, shown us through his life and some of the things that the Lord did in and through him and, and ultimately how his life is one that, that points us directly to Jesus. And this morning, we're going to be talking a bit about honesty and transparency and even the word repentance. You're going to hear that word come up quite a bit, but just kind of asking the question today, can I be honest with you? And I, I, I want us to be Uh, the type of people that are asking that question of ourselves, asking that question of others, uh, reflecting on how that actually impacts the nature of Christian fellowship and what it looks like for us as believers in Jesus Christ to demonstrate Christ-honoring honesty. And this morning we're in 2 Samuel chapter 12. I'm going to start off by reading the first seven verses, and uh, then we're going to keep revisiting various portions of this chapter. But in 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting with verse 1, this is what we read. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to look at this portion of your word together, and we pray that as we look at this portion of Scripture that you'd help us to understand it, that you'd help us to grow, that you'd help us to learn from what we're seeing here, and that there'd be very obvious ways that you make clear to us where we can apply this to our day-to-day life, our walk with you, our relationship with others, our life within the, the church body as a whole. Lord, we pray that you'd help our faith to grow as portions of Scripture like this stretch us, and we see some of the things that were going on behind the scenes, and certainly things that, that David didn't want known and certainly things he didn't want discussed publicly, and yet for our benefit and for your glory, these things are recorded, and so, Lord, we're grateful for that. But, Lord, we pray that you'd prepare our minds and hearts to understand the essence of this passage and the specific words that we're, we're reading here. We pray that we'd understand what, what it means and, and what we're supposed to do with this. And again, Lord, we thank you for the privilege to be able to set time aside right now to look at your word and contemplate what you've revealed to us in it. We love you, Lord. We commit this time to you now, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So it may not always feel like a blessing, but if you have a few people in your life who are willing to tell you the truth in love, you are a blessed person, 
indeed. Do you believe me as I say that? You have a few people in your life that are willing to tell you the truth in love. Now, there's some people in your life and some people in my life that are willing to tell you the truth, but not in love, right? Doesn't, that doesn't always feel like a blessing, right? But if people tell you the truth in love, that's a blessed situation. And I've shared this before, but maybe some of you weren't here when I said this, and this is a really important theory, so I really want this to be something that we all get. But I have a theory. It's one of my guiding principles in life. I'd even go so far as to say that. And I think it's really, really accurate. It's a relational test that most people hesitate to practice. And I'd encourage you to put it to the test. But my theory goes like this. I've shared it before. A true friend will always tell you if you have food on your face. A true friend will always tell you if you have food on your face. An acquaintance or casual friend may or may not. But a true friend will always tell you if you have food on your face. Ask me how I know. After the service, right? But for all our quirks, I'm grateful that the relational honesty that I experienced growing up was something that was part of the culture of my family. Very grateful for that relational honesty. Um, now, I'm grateful for it now, at this season of my life. By the way, uh, if you look back in the corner by the sound booth, do you see, put your hand up, sir. Uh, that's my dad, all right? So um, I'm just going to, I just have a lot to get off my chest about that man, and so I'm just going to spend the rest of today's message, can I be honest with you, talking directly to him. <laughs> Maybe not, but I, I will say this. My siblings, my parents, my grandparents, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, the, this is true. I, I don't really feel like they ever hesitated to tell me my, their real opinions about my life growing up uh, or their real opinions about anything I was doing during my formative years. That was not a hesitation. Part of the culture of our family was one of relational honesty, and we practiced that even though we didn't know we were doing a good thing. Um, so if I was making poor decisions, I heard about it. It was not a secret. Everyone talked about it, also to me, right? It wasn't just talked about behind my back. It was also talked about to me, in front of them, held accountable. Uh, if they didn't like the way I cut my hair, I heard about it immediately upon them seeing my face after getting it cut that way, right? Um, if they noticed I was making a humming noise while I was eating, I also heard about that too. That is a real thing. <laughs> Nothing was off limits. Nothing, literally nothing was off limits. And uh, I didn't realize that not everybody did that. I just kind of thought that that's kind of what everybody did. And then you grow up and you realize, no, not everybody practices that. And maybe sometimes your own family took it a little too far. Whatever. You know, you got to course correct somewhere, right? And again, blame the man in the corner back there, right? <laughs> but the beauty of that relational style is that I rarely had to guess what my family was thinking. I didn't have to guess. There wasn't a whole lot of guessing taking place there. And I think in many cases, I can point to certain moments where I'm, I'm certain that I was given wisdom and correction before I made the poor decision because of that, right? Now, admittedly, I didn't always want to take the counsel I was given right away. So sometimes I was given good counsel and I chose not to listen to the counsel that I was given, but at least I had the blunt but loving counsel of my family rattling around in my head as I tried to progress through the awkward years of my early life. It was there, it was present, it was something that was shared. I'm grateful for it, especially at this season of my life. Now, 
Think about this from a perspective and how this same concept that I'm mentioning there, this relational honesty, would affect somebody in a leadership position like David was in as he's trying to lead the people of Israel. It can be a tough thing for people in leadership to experience uh, relational honesty because they don't see it a whole lot. There's not a whole lot of loving counsel that they receive. Uh, Leaders, especially somebody like David, someone in that kind of position, they're often attacked. They're often nitpicked fairly. They're often blamed for things that aren't directly their fault, but they make an easy scapegoat. And so critique, oftentimes, if you're in a position like that, if you look, historically, it tends to make people feel defensive. They don't tend to be receptive to it because they don't always realize what motive is behind it. And some leaders are so insecure that when they receive negative correction, they tend to go on the offense, and then they attack the critic, even if the critic took a loving approach. And again, you can see that in many contexts. And so I suspect that there were not too many people in Israel who relished the thought of correcting David when he was in error. I don't imagine a whole bunch of people, you know, jumped up and down to do that. If you look at David's history and you look at what Scripture reveals to us about him, David was a powerful king. And prior to being a powerful king, David was a mighty warrior who didn't have a habit of backing down from a challenge. Keep in mind, this is the same guy that uh, was the only one in Israel willing to to go face-to-face, toe-to-toe with Goliath. He wasn't the type of guy that most people in their right mind would be eager to confront. But sometimes he needed that confrontation, especially in the midst of seasons where he was drifting away from obedience to God's Word. And here's the thing I'll, I'll just caution us about, even before we look at more of these details related to David. You may think that you're standing strong in your walk with the Lord. And that very well may be true, but it doesn't take much for us to drift from that. And anyone that thinks they are above drifting from that is making a mistake that will directly lead to them drifting from that. Our own ignorance of the possibility that we might go in directions that we don't even think are possible for us to go usually sets us up for failure because your guard goes down because you don't think you're susceptible to different things. And I think that David was possibly wrestling with that to some degree. I think he did certain things during this season of his life that he had no thought that he would ever do, and yet here he was. Now, how many of us grew up hearing the Ten Commandments? Now, my father had 37. Um, But I'm just going to go through the ten that are actually in the Bible. I had to read the Bible to find out what ones were real and which ones were made up. Um, by the way, number 40, or excuse me, number 14 was always by the good lunch meat, all right? But that one's not in the Bible. That was a family rule. But I grew up hearing the Ten Commandments at home and at church. Uh, I'm, so, I'm assuming that most of us, even culturally, I think many, maybe even most people are still at least to some degree familiar with what they are. Whether we choose to be obedient to their teaching or not is probably a different thing. But the Ten Commandments advise us what it looks like to love and honor God. You know, you look at the first group of the Ten Commandments, you know, it's all about loving God and honoring God. And then you look at the next half of the Ten Commandments, and it's all about loving and honoring people. And so we're shown what that looks like, even if you just look at those commandments. And David was highly familiar with the Ten Commandments as well. He knew knew the Ten Commandments. He was taught them. He was, you know, those were drilled into him during the course of his life, part of the culture in which he lived in as well. And I'm sure that he could rattle them off verbatim without any hesitation. I, I feel very confident that he could do that. But it's one thing to know something in your head. 
And it's another thing to actually live out what you claim to believe. Because there's a lot of things that sometimes get in our heads, but if they ever get acted on with our hands, that's a, sometimes a very separate thing. And in the previous chapter to where we are today, and we looked at it last week, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we're shown examples of David blatantly breaking at least three of those commandments. The 10th commandment tells us not to covet another man's wife. It specifically tells us that. And yet David willingly coveted Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, without restraint. That's what he did. He was willing to do that. The seventh commandment tells us not to commit adultery. And then in 2 Samuel 11, what did we see? We see that David was willing, more than willing, to sleep with Bathsheba the very first opportunity that he had to do so. The sixth commandment tells us what? You know there's going to be a, a, a quiz, right? Don't commit murder. And yet David, he orchestrated the, the unjust execution of Uriah through trickery on the battlefield as he attempted to cover his own sin. Now, if all of this information was made known to you, you're told all of this about David, right? Because again, David was trying to hide this. He was trying to cover this. This wasn't information he wanted people to be aware of. He didn't want people to know that he had done this. But let's say you were the only person in Israel that found out the truth about everything that was going on behind the scenes. Would you have been willing to confront David about that? Now, it's hard to say because we're not there, but I would suspect most people would not be willing to be the one to confront the king about all these things. And yet, that's exactly the position that Nathan found himself in. Nathan, if you're familiar with him or if you're not familiar with him, Nathan was a prophet. And, I, you know, I know that many of you, many of us in, in our congregation have very difficult jobs, but if there was ever a job that was difficult in any era of history, being a prophet during the Old Testament was certainly a job that would have been very, 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 very difficult. A lot of times people think that prophets, their, their main task is to just predict the future and that people would stare at them in amazement and be like, how did you know that? And then you could just be like a wise prophet and be like, how did I know that? And then people would be like, interesting. And you would think that they got all this admiration and everybody was like, wow, it's just so amazing. Nathan's able to tell us the future. But you know what prophets would often do? I mean, yes, at times they were given the ability to predict the future as the Lord would speak to them and through them. But when you observe the ministry of prophets during the days of the Old Testament, what you see is that they actually served as the conscience of the nation. They were the conscience. So in addition to their ability that was you know, divinely enabled for them to predict the future at times as the Lord would reveal certain things to them, they were also very commonly more often than predicting the future, they were most often compelled by the Lord to bring out into the open the hidden wickedness that was taking place in the nation or the hidden wickedness that was, that was taking place in the lives of the kings. They would take the things that only, only God knows the heart truly, and what God would do is He would reveal the heart of kings and reveal the hearts of the nation to the prophets, and then the prophets would speak what was hidden in secret out in public and um, how do you suppose that often went over? Especially when you're dealing with kings that don't really care about what the Lord cares about, or people who have hearts that are hard against the Lord. What ended up happening, if you were a prophet during the era of the Old Testament, many of them, 
They, they often experienced being ostracized by the community because their words were so unpopular. And if you ever want to read uh, the story of a life that would have been really, really hard to live, just read through the book of Jeremiah, for example. There's like anything you see happening in his life other than the sovereign hand of God guiding and directing him, but anything that he dealt with with people, there's like one positive thing that gets referenced in the book of Jeremiah. Like one friend that helps him one time, and then the rest of it is everybody hating him and trying to kill him. And then you have Jeremiah writing the book of Lamentations, and what's a, a, you know, a Lamentations? Look at the word, lament, right? And people refer to him as the weeping prophet. Do you think you would weep if from the time you were a teenager, and by the way, God called him when he was a teenager, if as a teenager, the rest of your life, you were invited to, to serve people and be the conscience of a nation and speak words that were unpopular and everybody wants you to die and they abuse you in all kinds of ways throughout the course of your life and then you get to the end and feel like you have no friends. Sounds like a great life, doesn't it? And you know what? It was. It's a life we're here talking about right now that served a purpose that reverberates into eternity. Well, Nathan was given that kind of task in his era. He was given that kind of life, that kind of experience during the days of, of David's reign as Nathan was raised up by the Lord and called to serve people in what was, in many respects, a very unpopular way. So frequently, when you look at the lives of the prophets, um, you know, when, when, when their life came to an end, it wasn't usually from, from natural means. They didn't usually die of old age. It usually ends up being something where, where people killed them. I had a, a, a question from a pastor a while back. And he said to me, he said, you know, here in the context that I'm in, I don't really feel like my church likes me very much. And I said, all right, elaborate on that. Now, I happen to know who, who served in that role prior to him. And I happen to know that the guy who, who served there prior to him also felt that way while he was serving at that church. But then when he left, everybody spoke well of him. And I said, the only thing you have to do to be spoken well of by that particular church is leave, and then they think you're great. So that's all you have to do. You just have to leave. Then you'll be a hero. And he's like, yeah, I don't think I want to do that. I was like, of course, I'm not advising you to do that, but I'm just telling you, that's how it works when you serve in that context. When you leave, you're great. While you're in the midst of it, you're terrible. That's what it was like for the prophets in the Old Testament. Once you were executed and dead, everybody said, oh, that guy was great. He was great. That guy, talk about an honest guy. That was an honest guy. He honestly died quickly when we stoned him. He was, he, when we sawed that guy in half, he died so fast, it was great. He was great. So frequently their lives were taken from them because few people wanted to hear the uncomfortable truths that they wanted to speak, so they'd oftentimes just kill them. But God would make his appeal to the nation of Israel and the kings through the prophets that he sent them. And again, most often the nation would reject that appeal. So after David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then had Uriah killed, and he's doing all this in a way that he thinks is very covert, you have the Lord revealing all these details that have now been hidden. He's now unhiding them by revealing them to Nathan. And Nathan then comes to David and appeals to his heart about these very things. And I appreciate the approach that Nathan took, because he actually used a technique that Jesus would often use during the course of his, his earthly ministry particularly when it came time to, to convey deeper level knowledge. If you've read the Gospels, you've seen the many parables that Jesus would share with the crowds. And he would use parables to help them understand a variety of things that they were missing by relating deeper level truths 
to sometimes very common experiences in day-to-day life that are very easy to relate to. And so he would do that, and Jesus also revealed that at times he would use parables to conceal certain things for those who had wicked intentions toward him. So they served a dual purpose. They would reveal things to those that things were meant to be revealed to, and they would conceal things from those that things were meant to be concealed from. And so Nathan, in this context, you see that he feels led to share that same approach when he decides to confront David, as the Lord impresses upon his heart to do so. So when he had David's ear, and again, during that time, the Lord would raise up prophets to try and be a conscience of the nation, a conscience for the king. So Nathan requests this audience with David. He comes before David. He's got David's ear, and he starts telling him a story. And he tells him a story that's very easy to to feel emotion related to when you start hearing it. He tells him about a poor man who wasn't rich in the things of this world, but he had something that was precious to him. He says he had a little lamb that he cared for and fed and lived with and operated with like it was his own child, like it was his little daughter. And so you have David's heartstrings being pulled as he hears that. And the scripture goes on to tell us a few other things. When you look at 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 through 4, it says this, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So this is the story Nathan's unveiling to David, and David's listening, and he knows that Nathan's an honest person, and so he's hearing this, but as David's hearing this, he's not realizing this is a parable. He's thinking that this is something that directly happened as it's being stated, not a representative story meant to illustrate a deeper level truth. And so as David's hearing this, he's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about what's going on with the people referenced in this story, and he couldn't help but feel compassion for the poor man that Nathan was telling him about. Now, when, when you look at David's response, you can tell that the whole story, it disturbed him immensely. And one of the things that I appreciate about the Lord himself is when you look throughout Scripture, and you see this in a variety of ways, both in the Old and in the New Testament, the Lord makes it very, very clear that his heart is compassionate toward the poor and the destitute. Don't you see that all throughout Scripture? That reflects the heart of God. If you have a concern for those that are not doing so well, if you have a concern for someone that's in the midst of poverty or has hit hard times or whatever, that's a concern that I think that the Lord places upon our heart because it reflects His heart. So if you ever feel compassionate, if you ever feel led to... And I have to tell you, I mean, I get to see this because of my role as your pastor, and I can say this without betraying any confidences, but in the 15 years that I've been here... I, at this point now, have completely lost track of how many times I could tell you there are people in our congregation who have secretly helped other people in our congregation in the midst of times of great need. A lot of times, you know where that funnels through? The church office. And so usually one person gets to know other than the people in the midst of it. And usually the people receiving it doesn't know, don't know where it came from. And a lot of times it's done that way on purpose. And I love that because I feel like it reflects the heart of God. And I've seen it over and over again. I've lost track of how many times I've seen that. 
And so as David's hearing this about a poor man who basically has his most prized possession taken from him, this ewe lamb, this one lamb that he has, this rich man's got a whole herd, whole flock, and this, this, one, this guy just has one and it gets taken from him, David's heart feels compassion. And that's a, that's a, a, a God-inspired form of compassion that I think we're all supposed to have because it, it reflects the heart of God. And so I believe David was actually reflecting the Lord's compassion for the destitute in this particular context. But after hearing this story, you see David realizing, you know what, I'm actually, I'm king. I'm in position to do something about this. You know, do you ever have that, that feeling of justice just triggered in you? where something needs to be fixed, something right needs to be done. And that's where David was at. He's like, you know what? I'm in position to do something about this. And, and he starts feeling that fire in his chest. It starts coming out of his mouth. And he says this. He says, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. He had no pity. Now, it's interesting how honest we can be when we feel like we're analyzing someone else's faults, but it's a lot harder to be objective when we're talking about our own, isn't it? David felt that the rich man, and he said it with his own words, he felt that the rich man deserved death or at least some form of severe punishment and retribution for his sin, and yet Nathan was about to drop a bomb on David. He says this, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint. And so now he's speaking on God's behalf. And the Lord says through Nathan to David, I anointed you king over Israel. And I delivered you out of the hands of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Could you imagine being David hearing that? He thinks at this point until Nathan speaks those words, David thinks that he's gotten away with all of that. David thinks that he's gotten away with impregnating Bathsheba. David thinks that he's gotten away with murdering her husband, Uriah. He thinks he's gotten away with all of it. He doesn't know that people know the depth of what he's just done. And then you look at the life that David had been blessed with leading up to that point. So you think he's got every advantage, right? He's got every single advantage. You think about the life he's been blessed with, the providential ways that the Lord had been Lifting him up from obscurity to a place of providence. You have the Lord giving David strength. Uh, he made David's name great in the land of Israel. The people would sing songs about him. They loved the guy. You have the Lord protecting David from those that wanted to harm him. You know, people that definitely had the, the capacity to do so. You have the Lord blessing David with all the things a person could want in this world. Power, riches, and then in his context, I don't know if I don't know that you'd consider this a as much of a blessing. But kings had many wives and many concubines. And what did the Lord say? And if all this wasn't enough, I would have given you more, David. Just do it the right way. 
right? If this wasn't enough, the Lord says, I would have been willing to give you more. But what is the Lord really saying through Nathan? It was more than enough. You were amply supplied. There wasn't a single thing in this world that you lacked. It was all given to you. You were blessed. You were favored more than any other man on the earth in your days. And he said, I would have given you even more. But I think, and you know, we've seen this in our own lives many times, we could probably identify with this. If our hearts aren't, aren't content with finding satisfaction and rest in the Lord, there is nothing that our flesh craves that will successfully fill that void. There's no earthly thing that can fill that void. If your heart won't find contentment in the Lord, what you will discover is a life spent chasing after a whole bunch of things that can't fill that void. By the way, that's what most people in this world are doing. They can sense that they have a deep level void and they're chasing to fill it. That's why people get addicted to the things they get addicted to. That's why people prioritize certain ambitions over their families. That's why people sacrifice their health to chase after worldly things. They think somehow it's going to satisfy that longing in their soul. And the truth is, if you keep spending your life trying to satisfy that longing in your soul with anything other than the one who can actually satisfy it, you will waste your life. You will chase things that don't have the capacity to, to satisfy an eternal void. You know, it's been said that there's a God-shaped hole in all of us, a God-shaped void, a God-shaped vacuum. Only God can fill it. Only God can fill it. So whatever you're chasing, thinking it's going to bring contentment to your heart, if it's anything other than Jesus, I'll just save you the trouble and hopefully save you from many years of pain. Nothing but Jesus is going to satisfy that void. Nothing but Jesus is going to satisfy that hole in your, in your heart or in your soul. And here you have David trying to find things of this world to satisfy that void. And in the midst of it, he messed up big time. He messed up big time. David was now caught. Again, what he thought was hidden, it's now out in the open and his heart's grieved. So he's, you know, he sees this, he hears this, his heart's grieved. The word of the Lord that was spoken through Nathan, it actually prompts swift conviction and swift repentance from David. It's kind of amazing because, again, he's got the power. All he has to do, he, if he really wanted to in this context, think about this. I don't know who was around when this conversation took place. Maybe you kill the messenger. Some kings would have. I think some kings would have been like, you know what, Nathan, you're right. And because I, don't want, because I don't want other people to know, I'm going to have you executed, right? He could have done that. That's what he did to Uriah. But the Lord spoke through Nathan. It prompted swift conviction, swift repentance from David. There was nothing David could do besides basically just admit that he had sinned and he deserved the consequences of his actions. And when you look at what it tells us in verses 13 and down through verse 15, it says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Think about that. Just that statement right there, to just be able to say, I have sinned against the Lord. You know what most people do when they're confronted? If they even receive the confrontation, what do they do? Blame someone or something else. Cast blame. It's somebody else's fault. It's the way I was raised. It's the context I grew up in. It's someone else that prompted me to do this. It's my difficult circumstances at work. It's because I don't have financial means, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We usually blame someone or something else. It's because of my quirky personality. How can you blame me, right? And what does David say? No, I have sinned against the Lord. He owns it. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also 
has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. Well, that's a mess. That whole thing is a mess. And by the way, when you look at the rest of David's life, and we're going to be looking at some additional things that are going to come from this, there were long-term repercussions that come from this. The Lord spares his life and continues to use him in great and mighty ways, but there were some consequences that came. And David's life before this moment, you could look at and say, yeah, it was much better than after this moment, even though the Lord spared his life. And I look at Nathan, and there's a lot of things I guess we could say about him, but one thing I'll say about Nathan is this. Nathan did his job that day. Nathan did his job that day, right? I can only imagine what was going through Nathan's head as, uh, as he walked back to his house after confronting the most powerful man in the land. I wonder if he was like, huh, I lived through that. Cool. Can I tell you a story about my dad? <laughs> when I was in college, I had the opportunity to be the manager of a snack shop on the college campus. And um, I was pretty young at the time when they hired me to do it. I was 19. And one of the guys that they hired to work there was someone that was a student at another season of life. He was in his mid-30s. And so I was there working with this other student, but I was the manager. I was 19. He was in his mid-30s. Can I confess to you that that intimidated me? And that guy took great advantage of that because he could tell. And I remember looking at all the different times I was wiping surfaces down and putting things away and mopping, and I'd see him out in the eating area watching TV instead of helping me. And my, my father, he owned a grocery store, and I worked there growing up, and I saw him deal with all kinds of employees. And one day I decided I'd just call him up and, and complain a little bit, like manager to manager, you know, because now we get each other, right? And I was like, Dad, oh, it's terrible, you know, employees, am I right? And, uh, and he's like, well, tell me about it. And so I told him about this guy. And uh, I said, yeah, I mean, you know, he's supposed to help me with stuff. And then I see him, like, just sitting down, and he's not wiping stuff down. He's just watching TV. And, uh, and I was like, and he does it all the time. It drives me nuts. And I said, what do you think? And he goes, well, remember that relational honesty thing I told you about? He said, well, you know what I think? And I'm, like, all eager to hear him just, like, join my team. And he goes... Sounds to me like you're a bad manager. And I was like, what? Excuse me? This is a long-distance call. These cost money, sir. And I was like, what do you mean? I'm a bad manager. I'm a good manager. Look at the stuff that I'm doing. That's a guy not working. He's like, well, didn't they hire you to manage? I was like, yes. He's like, well, then manage the guy. Tell him. Fire him. Do something. I didn't have the authority to fire him, but... Probably could have said more than I said. And you know what? Why, did I, why didn't I say what I could have said? Because I was 19. He was in his mid-30s. First time I was put in a role like that. And it made me nervous. And I realized, you know what? If you're ever put in a leadership role like that, either do the job or give it to somebody else. And that's what I started to say to myself after that. Two years after that, I was pastoring my first church. Do you think that was probably a lesson that God in his providence allowed me to 
learn a little early because it was going to have an impact on the churches that I would lead someday? You bet. And I got some really good counsel from the guy sitting in the back row. Don't expect any more compliments today, all right? That one was a hard one to receive. Don't give that guy a mic. He's got a lot of opinions. But I look at a portion of Scripture like this, too, and I look at Nathan and I say, Nathan did his job that day. He did his job, right? And again, I can only imagine, he's walking home. It tells you, like, when you look at the end of this, it says, then Nathan went to his house. And I could just imagine, after he leaves David's presence and he's walking to his house, and he's thinking, I didn't know what the fallout was going to be. And by the way, when you do the right thing, you don't always know what the fallout's going to be. All you know is that you're supposed to do the right thing. You can't control what happens afterward. All you can control is that you did the right thing. So he did the right thing, and as he did so, he knew he was risking his life to do it, and he still did the right thing. So all you're in charge of is doing the right thing as God prompts your heart to do it. You're not in charge of what happens next. And it might seem positive, it might seem negative, just do the right thing. He did his job that day. And I'll tell you what, there are going to be times in your life and in my life, each of our lives, where repentance is necessary. Now, we see David expressing some repentance here. And in fact, I believe that it's God's desire that we live our lives with the spirit of repentance, that that should be something that you and I live with every single day. And biblical repentance is more than just admitting fault and more than just admitting that you're sorry. It involves a new way of thinking. It involves a new way of believing. It necessitates a change in behavior. It's facilitated by a divinely orchestrated transformation where one willingly forsakes the things of this world so that we could fully embrace Jesus Christ, the giver of life. That's what biblical repentance looks like. Now, let's give credit to our Lord because He's abundantly patient with us. The Lord has graced us with time to repent, particularly time to repent of our unbelief. When you look at your life and I look at my life, we once ignored Christ's offer to forgive our sins and to to renew our minds, but now what do we do? We value that opportunity. And I love what Scripture tells us when it speaks of repentance. It tells us in 2 Peter 3.9, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why do you suppose the Lord lets things that are crazy go on in this world right now as He's doing so? Why doesn't he just say, enough, put his hand down, and end it? The answer is right there. He's being patient because he knows that in the midst of this mess, which we're currently going through, he knows that there's still some people that are going to turn around. He knows that there's still some people that are going to come to faith in Jesus Christ, and he's giving them the time to do so, so that they won't perish, and that's in the eternal sense of that word, so that they don't spend an eternity in hell. That's why the Lord's delaying his return to give people time to repent, to give people time to go from unbelief to belief because He wants all to reach repentance. That's the heart's desire of the Lord. He wants you to reach repentance from unbelief to belief. He wants me to reach it, and He wants your neighbor to reach it, and He wants people that you feel like have lived as your enemies to reach it. Then you look at Acts 17.30, there it says this, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Why did he overlook it? Because he's patient. He's being patient with us. By the way, when you look in the, in the Gospels, you have John the Baptist preaching a message of what? 
Repentance. Preaches a message of repentance. Some people responded favorably to it. Some people did not. And then you have Jesus. What did he preach? He also preached a message of repentance. Look at what it tells us in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying, you used to think and believe this way. Change your mind. Change your heart. Believe and walk in the new life that he graces us with. I know repentance sounds like a scary word. I think for many people it's the most terrifying word in the entire Bible. But it's actually a delightful privilege. When you realize the privilege that the Lord's given us to repent, it's a wonderful thing. Consider what Jesus is giving us the opportunity to do. He lovingly invites us to stop wrapping our arms around this world and to stop wrapping our arms around the things in this world that are trying to destroy us so that we could experience the unfettered blessing of enjoying eternal life in His kingdom. He waited for you so that you would get to receive that. He literally waited for you to receive that. He could have come back in the 1800s. He could have come back before, you know, let's say it's 10 years ago that you came to faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus could have come back 12 years ago. But He waited for you. He demonstrated patience, but he invites us to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he says, don't keep wrapping your arms around things that are trying to destroy you. Enjoy life in his kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Again, Rich Mullins has a line where he would say, I don't want to lose the eternal for the things that are passing. Right? I don't want to lose the eternal for the things that are passing. So what about us? Like, do, we, do we want to lose the eternal for things that are passing? Or will we seek first Christ's kingdom and Christ's righteousness? Because he waited for us to, to give us the opportunity to do so. Patrick Morley, I actually had a book of his uh, on that back table there. From time to time, by the way, if you see books back there, take them. They're free. And I had one of his books back there. And in, in his book, I Surrender, Patrick Morley made a statement that I want us to think about as we finish up this morning. He writes that the church's integrity problem is in the misconception that we can add Christ to our lives, but not subtract sin. He says it's a change in belief without a change in behavior. And then he goes on to say this. He says, it's a revival without reformation or a revival without repentance. I mean, there's no revival at all. If repentance isn't part of it, no change has taken place. But if repentance is part of it, Great change has taken place, that Christ is empowered. I know it can be easier to be honest with others than it can be to be honest with ourselves, but a portion of Scripture like we just read together from 2 Samuel 12, chapter 12, I think that it, it can really help us in this process of gradual growth and gradual reflection. And I just want to encourage us to do this. For God's glory, let's embrace the repentance that He prompts. When He prompts repentance in your heart and in your life, just embrace that. It's a wonderful thing. And embrace the revival that he fans into flame inside of you. And the reformation of our lives that he orchestrates as we become a new creation in Christ Jesus. It's a very sad tale that we read in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. And yet there's a very redemptive thread in the midst of it. Again, you look at a man who was confronted with his sin and he repented. And that's a wonderful thing.
And for you and for me, we need to get to a spot where we realize, you know what? On my own, I messed this up. And the day that I stop relying on Christ and start relying on myself, I'm going to mess it up even further. But if I live my life relying on Christ, if I live my life putting Him first in all areas, if I can acknowledge where I'm off course, confess it to Him, and plead for His intervention, you know what His response to that is? There are certain prayers that God always says yes to, and a prayer of repentance is one of them. Isn't that a wonderful thing about our Lord, who is patient with you and with me to give us the time to experience that restored fellowship with Him? Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for Your patience. Thank You so much for Your honesty. Thank You so much for Your willingness to look at us with compassion and decide to do something about the mess that we were in and the issues that, that we had created through our own ignorance and through our own desire to just go our own way. Lord, I realize that even though we've come to faith in your son, Jesus Christ, certainly I, I hope that that's the case of all of us gathered, but maybe there's some who are still wrestling with that thought. But Lord, even those of us that have come to faith in your son, Jesus Christ, sometimes we, we go in a direction that we didn't anticipate going. We didn't think that we were going to go in that direction. We didn't think that our lives would see certain things or that we would do certain things or, or that we would invite certain things into our life when we let our guard down. And yet here we are. And Lord, we know that the temptation is there for us to rely on our own strength and wisdom and reject the counsel that we're given from others, even if it's counsel that's given in love. We know that it's our temptation to try and hide our sin and, and resist repentance there's a wonderful example that you give to us in this portion of your word, what it's looked like to be confronted with the truth and respond favorably. So Lord, as we read your word together, we're going to be confronted with the truth, and we pray that when you do so, that we wouldn't blame or ignore or minimize what you've said, but that we would say, you know what, Lord, you're right and you're always right. Help me to bring my life in alignment with the teaching of your word. Help me to listen to the counsel of your Holy Spirit as he speaks directly to my heart. Help me to honor you by reflecting the heart of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that that would be what you would accomplish in our lives, that that would be our mindset and our attitude. And we're so grateful, Lord, that that's the very thing that you've been waiting for us to, to express and experience. Thank you, Lord, for your patience with us. Thank you for demonstrating that in David's life as well, but Lord... We see you do that today. We see you do that right now. The fact that you have not yet returned to this earth, the fact that you haven't snuffed us out of existence is further testimony that you're still being patient with us. We know that this time of your patience has an end point, but we're grateful that we're in the midst of it. And we know, Lord, that what comes next is something that for some we will rejoice over, those that have come to faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, will rejoice at your return and your restoration of all things. But Lord, we know that there are many that will realize and see that that was the day that the clock ran out. So Father, I pray that if there be anyone in my hearing right now who as of yet has not experienced the gift of salvation through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, 
that today would be the day that they stop playing games with your clock. That they thank you for your patience, but that today is enough. And that you become real to them today. And for those of us who claim to know you, but we've been testing that patience, we pray, Lord, that we would repent openly and willingly and that you would be preeminent in our lives once again. We love you, Lord. We're grateful for your presence with us now. We commit ourselves unto you in Jesus' name. Amen.